Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Game Time. Hey, buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app now, create an account, and use code GOODSEATS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account, redeem the code GOODSEATS for $20 off. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Download Game Time today. And now, here's our show. I wish that I can go back and play against Australia, you know? You can't change anything on the, on the internet. It's still going to stay in the record for a long time. It's embarrassing, you know? I was there when Australia beat us 30 no. 30, I think 30 or 31, I'm not but I know it was 30. The boys, they got the hearts. I know they not really have the skills and everything, but they got the guts. We're always the underdogs and we always will be until we prove them wrong. They needed nine goals today. You gave them only eight. It's a step. These are steps. Steps all going in the right direction. I played with George Best, Jan Cruyff. I coached several MLS teams. Thomas is a real professional, high-level coach. Go, Thresher, Fagdala! Go, buddy! Uh, he's tougher. You're playing yourself out of the starting 11 right now. If you're not going to be mentally tuned in, you're a risk, man. When he got here, Thomas was a very difficult person to deal with. You brought me here to put a winning team yes. on the field. Then don't interfere. I told him, if you don't like it, you just pack your things and go back home. I got a man that's really discovered she has more female tendencies. The goalkeeper, the only guy that wasn't at 31 to nothing loss. They're scarce with this team. All right, here we go. All the way coming up, all the way coming up. Hard draw, knees up, knees up. Come on, 50, come on, 50, baby, come on. Woo, I like it. Red Soccer has become cynical in big business, and, and I don't want this to happen here. These guys play because they love the game. They get zero, you know, nothing. I'm here to play for my country, represent, do my best on the field. You know, I'm here for the love of the game. I'm just trying to prove we're not the same team anymore. I want to win a game. I would die as a happy person. To play in a World Cup qualifying game, the biggest sporting event in the world. And you guys are part of this. Wow. That's pretty cool. American Samoa Warriors, show me how to fight. I'll show you how to win. Come on. Well done. Well done. Well done. I just shit myself in the fence, seriously. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Oh my goodness, can you feel the excitement? Well, it's coming at you. Here we go. My name is Tim Hanlon, of course, and this is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast. As always, devoted to what used to be in professional sports. I appreciate you coming on by. Thanks for downloading us, ingesting us. Uh, putting us in your earbuds, however you're uh, mainlining this week's uh, festivities. And buckle up uh, for excitement because here comes our guest this week, Thomas Rongen. And uh, if um, 
The name is familiar. Uh, you are probably a fan of the sport of soccer uh, in the United States or on the global stage or some combination thereof. Uh, but I think, frankly, the debate will be, geez, how do I know this guy, Thomas Rongen? Well, we're going to get into that uh, that uh, polyglot, shall we say, or multichromatic uh, story as to the various stops in the professional playing and coaching and uh, otherwise managerial and, and uh, senior management uh, world of, of professional soccer uh, in our conversation coming up. But I think the broadest uh, number of people, those who are maybe sort of passingly interested in the sport of soccer, not necessarily uh, diehard fans, may know the name Thomas Rongen from uh, the exploits uh, in the film from which you heard that clip at the beginning of this show. The film in, in 2014, from where that clip came from, was a, uh, a documentary, a British documentary called Next Goal Wins. It is a phenomenal film, one that must be uh, experienced and enjoyed and found uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, it's hard to get. It's hard to find these days. I think you have to go the DVD route or perhaps your local library because I know it's it's sort of not on any of the major streamers uh, as of uh, current uh, recording of this episode in June 2023. Um, but I think that's for a particular reason. Let me get let me explain. Next goal wins is about. Uh, the national soccer team of American Samoa. And uh, it is uh, their attempt, uh, as they are known as being, frankly, one of the worst or weakest soccer clubs in the world, uh, in their attempt to qualify for the 2014 World Cup, the FIFA World Cup. Um, and at the time, uh, this was a team, American Samoa, that had uh, been regularly thrashed by even the smallest minnows in the FIFA uh, world rankings hierarchy. Uh, for uh, a matter of fact, in 2001, American Samoa lost to Australia in a World Cup qualifying match by a score of 31 to nothing, which I think still stands as the worst loss on the international stage, uh, soccer-wise. Um, I'm not positive of that, but I think that that is still the case. And who was recruited? Uh, during the qualification, this is circa, what, 2012 or so, 2013, to basically rehab this team and, and perhaps bring them to some level of respectability, perhaps maybe uh, arguably not qualifying probably for the, the final, uh, you know, the final finals uh, of the 2014 World Cup, but, uh, but at least perhaps uh, being competitive in some of the qualification rounds. A uh, one Thomas Rongen. Um, and the story of Next Goal Wins is the sort of incredible journey, as you can sort of hear bits and pieces of in that clip, of what transpired. Um, now, the reason – so the movie, ultimately, you must get and watch and, and enjoy. It's it's fantastic. Arguably one of the best soccer documentary movies, frankly, ever made. Let's, let's be clear about that. Um, but I think the reason why it's hard to find at this moment as we're recording is because – wait for it – the movie is being made into a dramatic slash serial comic feature that's coming out later this year. Not exactly sure when. Certainly, I think in the fall is probably a wise guess. And the movie, again, is also called Next Goal Wins. And this time, instead of it being a documentary, it is it is stocked full of amazing uh, performers, uh, an Academy Award winning director, 
uh, Taika Watiti, and the role of Thomas Rongan being played by one Michael Fassbender. I mean, this is a guy who's been in amazing stuff over the years. Elizabeth Moss is in this. Oscar Knightley is in this. Will Arnett makes an appearance in this movie, among others. It's I don't know if it's star-studded, but it's certainly very – it's stock full of very talented actors and those who have been um, uh, waiting, perhaps, uh, to see this story in a more dramatic form, serial comic form. Uh, well, your wish will be granted later uh, this year. And boy, boy, talk about a story book ending or, or sort of a coda, I guess, to – uh, this amazing story by itself uh, now being made into a major motion picture, which, you know, perhaps has some Oscar worthiness to it come next year. Uh, this this is this this is the life of Thomas Rongan. And uh, it, it, this is just a, literally one part of it. Um, if you are a soccer fan of any sort of uh, of substance uh, for, you know, in past history or perhaps even even of today's action. you If you're a fan of today's game, you probably know him from his color commentary for uh, the Inter-Miami team in Major League Soccer. Uh, you've seen his work on various national uh, networks, uh, the Gold TV network, et cetera. Um, but if you go into the Wayback Machine, as we will do quite a bit in, a, in our conversation coming up in a few moments, you will know, remember, and revere the great Thomas Rongan from his playing days um, with AFC in, in – in, uh, in the Netherlands, but but in the United States, in the old North American Soccer League with the L.A. Aztecs, with Johan Cruyff, uh, the Washington Diplomats, also with Johan Cruyff, uh, the Fort Lauderdale Strikers uh, with George Best and, and uh, Ray Hudson and, and a whole bunch of other uh, uh, memorable players, uh, the Minnesota version of the Strikers, both outdoors and indoors, uh, the Chicago Sting in the indoor MISL. Yes, they were an NASL team, but don't forget the Sting converted into being a full-time MISL team. He was on that team in, in 85 and 86, that one that season. And various incarnations of the American Soccer League that happened after the North American Soccer League. And when his playing career was done, he went into the managerial ranks by being a coach of the Fort Lauderdale Strikers of the American Soccer League, I think the third version of the ASL, but also when MLS sort of uh, came onto the scene, here was Thomas Rongan. He was one of the original coaches in major league soccer. First with the Tampa Bay mutiny in 96, he became the second ever coach of the new England revolution. And then the second ever coach of DC United from 99 to 2001. He was also for you, uh, nostalgists out there and, uh, Pablo Mara, this is for you. 2005 was the coach of Chivas USA. You remember them? The American Samoa thing came around in 2011, 2012 or so. But Thomas Rongan has had quite the life and then some. He's been part of the United States national coaching apparatus, the under 20s, a couple of different stints there, uh, and is very active uh, in the game still today. And as you'll hear in our conversation coming up in a few moments, uh, has the gift of gab, shall we say. So uh, we are going to have a wonderful chat with the uh, one, the great uh, Thomas Rongan, uh, a bucket list conversation for sure. Uh, and it is coming up in uh, a moment's time. Please uh, stay tuned for it. You will enjoy it. I uh, virtually guarantee. Uh, quickly, though, before we get there, uh, I want a qu- quick shout out to our friend Dean Mitchell at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Promo code GOODSEATS. For 15% off all of your purchases, again, at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And 
There's new stuff all the time. This is this is the better, well lit, uh, and um, more guaranteeable, I think, version of eBay when it comes to sports collectibles. And uh, the specialty there uh, at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com is in our realm that we love and cherish stuff that's not around anymore. Leagues, teams, people, all kinds of stuff related to that. And that could be programs, that could be media guides, that could be cards, that could be uh, pennants, that could be a whole raft of stuff. Check it out and bookmark the site and check it out often, uh, will you? And, and write down this promo code so make sure that you get that uh, you get your um, you get your discount, you get your money off for God's sakes. Again, it's sportshistorycollectibles.com. Check them out and don't forget to use the promo code Good Seats for fifteen percent all of your purchases. You'll be glad you did, as they say. All right. You'll also be glad that you did stay around for this conversation. The one, the only, Thomas Rongan. It was a blast. A pleasure to have him. Uh, this happened about a month and a half ago. Please, as always, enjoy. The matter at hand right now is you're get, you're gearing up for a round two, I think, of, of stardom. Uh, albeit a bit uh, indirect with uh, the fictional version of Next Goal Wins. Um, you must be excited that this documentary from 2014 is being, if you will, remade into a, a, a full-length feature film now. It, it certainly is. It, it's one of those badass moments, you know, where you get an answer to a question. Who should play me in a movie? Well, it's the Oscar Golden Award winner, Michael Evan. Fastbender, who happens to be Magneto, um, a Spartan warrior, portrayed Bobby Sands, Steve McQueen, and, and Steve Jobs, and he's uh, portraying uh, truly yours, Thomas Rungan. Yeah, that's a pretty special thing at my age to be able to uh, to see this unfold, which has unfolded for several years uh, due to the 2014 documentary. And, and uh, I mean, I can't be happier that somebody like uh, Taikai uh, Waititi, who's won, you know, Academy Awards and Grammys as well, uh, a, a guy that's in 2022 is most one of the most, in, 100 most in, influential people in the world. Um, and when he watched Next Goal Wins, he actually got my phone number. And he says, I'm going to turn this into a full-fledged movie. I, I love underdogs. Um, most films are about people who live on the margins uh, or a little bit left out. Uh, he's going back to his Polynesian roots. He's from New Zealand. Uh, and I'm sure it will be like a heartbreaking comedy drama. Like think of it like Ted Lasso meets Cool Runnings, by the way, of the Mighty Ducks, you know, with uh, YTT's distinctive brand of humor. So I, I, I can't wait. Uh, there's a lot of things unfolding in the next few months that I, I can't talk about, but it's yeah, it's 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 fun times, no doubt. Yeah, I, I would imagine it's uh, it's also a bit surreal because it's somebody else portraying you, and you're very much still alive, <laughs> and and uh, obviously are are known uh, personality on a lot of different fronts, right? So a lot of people who know you already, especially from the the, the realm of soccer, and including that documentary in 2014, right? Are gonna, the first thing they're going to have to do is sort of suspend disbelief, if you will, and and take what they know of you and your personality and your visage and 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 put that aside to to let 
him do his uh, acting work and then the rest of the story yeah. as well. So that'll be fun. It'll to- be interesting to see because Michael Fassbender is not known for his comedies. So this is a, a real challenge for him as well, you know, and, and um, you know, the script was written by by Taiki and, and also by Ian Morris, the in-betweeners. You got Will Arnett from Ar- Arrested Development. Elizabeth Moss plays my, my wife. Uh, Oscar Knightley, you know, uh, the Duck Ruckers, Rice, Reese Darby, uh, David Fane. And he's got quite a few Polynesian uh, stars in this movie as well, because that was important to him. And, and, and yes, it was nice to see the buildup, but but I, I never really got a sense of, okay, this is going to happen till I watched the trailer. And in fact, Thomas is, is the first thing I hear. Rungan, I hear uh, in the trailer. So in fact... My name will be first and foremost in front, uh, played by uh, Fassbender. So it's finally taking root, and I, I, I can't wait um, because it, it it's. Let's be real honest. This is, and Taiki said to me as well. Uh, this features a rare mix of soccer and and transgender identity. You know, a subject that's still very much taboo in the sports world, um, and previous. What TT projects prior to these big ones um, praised him for his approach uh, to sexual identity orientation, um, and it's reasonable to expect that this movie will handle this subject lightly, but uh, you know, with and respectfully as well. So I can't wait, really, for 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 all the things I just mentioned. Out of the fact that Fastbender, there's some some very interesting storylines in this that will really hit home in, in, in the modern world, so to speak. Well, regardless, congratulations on, on the story Thank being you. worthy of that. But look, I, <laughs> I, I would also say too, frankly, for anybody who's listening, uh, the 2014 documentary uh, is in itself, I think, exquisite, well done, handling the various topics and themes in this, your, uh, your personal journey, um, uh, the the transgender issue that the the the, uh, uh, the 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 player that the that this that revolves around that just the sheer uh, excitement heartbreak and uh, uh, renewal I guess of the team and soccer I mean all those things yeah. with all due respect I didn't think the documentary could do the story much better but double double strike extra for 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 uh, a, a theatrical movie perhaps for a wider audience so i hope the yeah. halo for you continues and 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 give those two young english uh you know directors and producers that were there before me on the island mike brett and steve jamison who put the documentary together who got 100% approval ratings and rotten tomatoes crown best documentary at the british independent film uh, awards tribeca film festival it got a lot of great rewards and great reviews, obviously. And I'm sure if there's one that could maybe take a sports documentary and turn it into a movie and and do it well, it's Taiki. But it's it's it, it, not an easy task. And I, again, I can't wait how this unfolds. And he did talk to me a few days ago and said, "I'm I'm, I'm going to the Nicole story, the death of my stepdaughter, is going to be very much part of this this movie as well." So. He's got some tricky things that he had to navigate, but he feels he feels good about it. So, yeah, let, let, let's move on. Well, the f- the fact that you're uh, involved in the process is even better because uh, the, there are plenty of situations where, you know, uh, the directors and mm-hmm. move forward and stuff. So, all right. Well, best of luck for that. I know you're going to be talking about it ad nauseum and many other places, and we will promote the heck out of it for sure. 
but let's go to the beginning, if you will. So, all right, you're you're a young you're a young soccer player. You're you're playing in in Holland. Uh, you're you know obviously uh, in European soccer, which is a whole different thing. Back in the seventies, how the hell does this North American Soccer League thing hit your radar? <laughs> it, it didn't really hit my radar till talk about you know. The probably the last century, the three most influential people in, on the football inside are probably Renus Meagles. And then, although Johan Cruyff gets credited for total football, it was Renus Meagles, the Ajax coach, the great successes in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, the 74 World Cup obviously put, you know, total football, Clockwork Orange on, on, on the map. Meagles goes to Barcelona, takes Cruyff with him. You know, continue with all the players that followed Freud and became coaches. Pep Guardiola, the most important one, obviously. Um, so in 1978, I played for the Dutch. At that time, it was called the amateur team, and it was not you know, it's the Olympic team. And we played the U.S. Uh, Olympic team in five different cities. We played the same team in five different cities uh, in '78: um, San Diego, San Francisco, St. Louis. Uh, D.C. And, and New York. And while I'm flying back, oh, and another one, our, our normal head coach uh, became sick. So Renus Meagles uh, was just, just on the verge of going to Barcelona, uh, uh, had spent some time again with the Royal Dutch Soccer Federation, decides to go on this trip. And I'm flying over the Grand Canyon, and he's sitting next to me, and it's the general. I'm nervous. This, this is my, you know, Cruyff is my idol in terms of playing, in terms of coaches, um, that was the guy. And and he said to me, you know, how you doing? And I said, well, I'm in last year of, of my, my uh, master's, which is CEOs, the Central Institute of Educating of Sports Leaders, um, with an emphasis on on soccer, on football. And, you know, I, I, I'm probably going to be a gym teacher. And he goes, what do you think of the U.S.? So we're both looking out a window and go, wow, this is an unbelievable country. Okay, we'll keep going. A few months later, in January of 79, so a few months later, he calls me. And he goes, you remember, Thomas, uh, the beautiful plane ride over the Grand Canyon? I go, yes, Mr. Meagles. I just signed with the LAS Techs. There's a new league in the United States. I have one place for a cheap player. I give you $1,000 a month. you got to share a car with a with a American player and an apartment. And I need to know if you're going to come yes or no right now. So I look at my parents and they can hear a little bit what I'm saying. And I'm saying yes. <laughs> so I thought I was going for an adventure, a, a pretty cool adventure because I was the first Dutch player there. Fast forward, here comes Johan Cruyff and some other Dutch people, uh, players. Um, and that's how I ended up in, in, in the United States thinking this is going to be a one-off deal, a one-year, whatever. Here we are in 2023, almost 45 years later, and I became part of the fabric of, of football, soccer in, in the United States. So that, that's an incredible story that till this day I, I, I still tell. And um, the mere fact that, again, you know, there was a league existing. I knew of, of some football here in the wild years, when Dick Advocaat and Win Hanegem, some Dutch players, went here for a few months, they brought in yeah. foreign players, foreign teams before the NESL even was. Uh, yeah, um, there's international sort of soccer tournaments. It was correct. International soccer league it was nominal yeah. league. It was basically imported teams playing correct. tournaments. Yeah. So, 
I became part of the rise and, and fall of the, the NESL, you know, talking about the NESL, which, by the way, Rachel Violet has done a great documentary on that. And I've been in New York and a few other players promoting that and talking about a, that. a former guest and, and, a, and a, a tremendous one at that. Yeah. And, and Jim Trecker and I did a few a few things for, for her uh, based on that documentary, which was very well put put together. So there, here I am, a 21 year old in Los Angeles. Um, playing with a tremendous coach and obviously eventually with a teammate that I followed to the diplomats as well. So I played with Croy for for two years in, in the NSL, but we came very, very close. Um, I remember Jan, um the owners were two lawyers, actually. Ellen Rothenberg was, was one of the lawyers that owned the LAS decks and they just couldn't pay Croy anymore. So they stole them basically or traded them to... The diplomats and a few games into uh, the 1980 season, I get traded to the diplomats as well. And uh, I call Johan and he goes, I'll pick you up at the airport. So the whole family's there, the three kids. Jordi is like four or five, Chantal and Susila, the two daughters. And they go, just stay with us for a few days, find an apartment. Fast forward five months later, I'm still living with them on the third floor next to the Rockefellers and the Kennedys. So I got some interesting stories about it as well. But I became very close to uh, to the family for for the longest time. So those are fun memories, both on and off the field, and the influences going forward of some other Dutch greats that played for the Fortaleza Strikers. The ability to be a roommate because I spoke fluent German with Gerd Müller with the Strikers, being able to party with the Rolling Stones in Studio Fifty Four, hanging out with George Best at Besties uh, during my LA Essex times, and and. Really enjoyed both the on and off the field, you know, whatever you the environment, not a culture because soccer never will be entrenched in this um, in in this environment or this society as it is in Central South and 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 in Europe. But we've come a long way if you look at MLS, right, wrong, or indifferently. But um, when the league actually collapsed, most foreign players went back, and I said. I love this country. I want to stay here and I want to give something back. So I was probably one of the first technical directors uh, in, in the country. I became a high school coach. I became a college coach. And eventually I became uh, a head coach for the Tampa Bay Mutiny in, in 1996. So that's just real quickly, you know, how I got to, to MLS and eventually the U.S. men's national team World Cup with Steve Sampson as the assistant coach in 98. I, I had just a tremendous ride. So, all right, but before we leave Los Angeles for a second, I, um, number one, I, so the Aztecs, right? I mean, uh, it, it was it's odd because when when you and uh, Arenas and uh, uh, and and Johan obviously showed up, right? I mean, this is a team that kind of doubled their attendance. Yet the reality was, you're playing in, I think, the Rose Bowl, right? Which is cavernous. Correct. Correct. What, what, so what did even- you What did you think you stepped into? Because I mean, I would argue the Aztecs were never really the most well-attended team in the league, despite all that star power. Yeah, that, that's correct. And in Rose Bowl, even 20, 22, 25,000 on a rare occasion, if we played the Cosmos or some smart teams, we had a little bit more, uh, was still very empty. Uh, but on fast forward, for instance, to 1980, when we played the Cosmos, RFK rocked. The place was packed, you know, 60,000, 65,000. And, and, and Johan doubled the attendance there. It became a... a even going forward, when I coached DC United, a real fortress, you know, the stands were bouncing. But in, in LA, we weren't very, 
relevant. We were relevant because in a hierarchy of sports, people know other big time players, which means that we would hang out with the Lakers guys. Uh, we would uh, go to the Dodger games. We had guys coming up front row watching Cruyff play because at that time Jorn was considered to be the one of the best or maybe the best in the world. Um, in, in particular in the NASL when Pele obviously left. So we had some big time actors, Dutch actors like Rutger Hauer. Um, and and so it, it was a very interesting, more off the field than I would say on the field. But for me, uh, it was still special that each and every day I was able to pick the brain of one of the brightest uh, former players, eventually coaches, managers, presidents of clubs. And that's why I think Cruyff is probably number one in, in the last century because he was not only a great player, but also won something as a coach and directed Barcelona for a few years as well. Uh, the Cruyff Foundation, there are a lot of special things without a doubt. So I, I just, I knew already then I wanted to be a coach because of my my studies and my background. So I just soaked it up. And, and my coaching philosophy is pretty much steep 90% in in, in Renus and, and Johan's philosophy both both on and off the field was remarkable Johan had like had like a, a notepad um where he had showed me and he had the years in there so prior to them building la masia he had a, he had drawings of la masia how he wanted it and you know him and Rina's pretty much built la masia and and he, i remember the bottom of one page so this is late 60s early 70s mid-70s, when he's very young still, and he's drawn towards architectural, and, and, and he shows me in, in the Netherlands, when you go through the canals, most houses have these uh, roofs that are are triangles. And he's talked about triangles in architecture. we got to put it, and I put that in in my philosophy of playing, triangles all over the field. It was amazing how brilliant he was, and, and, and we were all influenced by a very interesting movement in, in Amsterdam where he was from and I was from and from a neighborhood um, where the Provos, which were hippies on, on bikes basically, but hippies that were first in the field of science, first in the field of architecture, first in the field of, of a lot of brilliant thing, artists, free thinkers, thinking outside of the box. Space was, was something we could do something with space, you know, and smaller spaces are even better. Johan always said, I love smaller spaces. And, and all that, here all of a sudden comes Ajax, you know, with all these free creative thinkers because of their upbringing that now they can able to put on the field. And I was so intrigued by that. And I started doing some research and, 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 and again, all those drawings and all those notepads he had at the bottom of the, of the La Masia drawing where he had like, you know, even a diet room and, and a classroom and size does not matter. You know, if it wasn't for Johan, the Savis, the Iniestas, the Messi's of the world probably would never been at uh, at, uh, at Barcelona because he felt that the game was changing already to a faster, stronger player. But he believed still, first and foremost, that should be a technical player, a mobile player, a brilliant tactical or creative player, um, so the, uh, incredible. Yeah, the whole total soccer thing was just wondrous, and and I arguably you could you could you could argue maybe for its 
uh, need to be returned, shall we say, to the mainstream, uh, you know, given now tactical and often defensive, especially at the at the world level or the, the major competitive level at the international level. I, it can be a bit turgid sometimes if it's played cynically. And this was the opposite of that. It was it was sure. like true to its name. And it was it was actually fun and interesting to watch, too, not only the global scale, but to, to even to bring some of those elements to the United States where this North American soccer league, you know, uh, star spangled as it was. Right. I mean, was it was it, need, it was trying to break through. It was trying to be attractive to the American fan and yeah. American fans attracted to offense, you know, and in action. No right? So yeah, yeah. Mo, mo, most teams were very forward thinking. Most teams put their money into attacking players. Most teams in the Cosmos is a great example, although they assembled uh, big names. But all these big names could play, you know, starting. um Starting, starting with with you know Franz Beckenbauer, you can't find a better guy to start the attack with with Bogey in midfield, beautiful, graceful left footer. You know, uh, obviously Giorgio can score, but if you look at the strikers, with the, at that time the all-time scorer in World Cup history, Gerd Müller, the George Best of the world, Trevor Francis in in his heyday, Vancouver brought over uh, some English players, but all based on attacking flair most and and, and foremost. Uh, uh, Hudson in Seattle, our own Ray Hudson in in, in Fort Lauderdale, Bernhard Hulsenbein, uh, Elias Figueroa. If you if you do a Wikipedia search on Elias Figueroa, he's considered sure. to be better than better than Beckenbauer. He won the South American Player of the Year when he played in Brazil. The majority of his and I played with him for two years. Uh, they consider him in the top three all time center backs ever. He played for the Strikers. You know, and the list goes on and on and on of. Of, of Carlos Alberto, the, at that time, the best overlapping right fullback in the world. So they they put a conscious effort into, you know, trying to make this a very attacking, entertaining league. Unfortunately, you can't build from the top down. That's why in the end, it, it, it obviously crumbled. But uh, yes, I, I was amazed. And, and, and I was a number six, you know, uh, Four six, so I, I ended up having to mark mostly the most creative tens on the other teams. You know, Miguel's with, oh, tell us that you're your opponent, and we're all like, I'm going, what? <laughs> I got to chase George Best down again, uh, which I did, by the way, in 19, I think 81. If you go to NESL goals of the year, Bestie just turns everybody inside out. Um, yeah, so that, that game again, uh, San Jose. That's right. It was it, yeah. it was like a slow motion kind of thing, and he I, right, right. I, I, I recover like I recover like two times, and he still not makes me and scores. It becomes the goal of the year. I mean, uh, amazing. It really was. So, all right. So, so let me let's talk about the NASL generally then while, while we're on it because I, I want to get to a, a bunch of other specific topics along the side. But, but how would you characterize the NASL? Right. I mean, you're you're in it. You're playing. There's lots of quality players coming in. Some of them, frankly, imported for the summer and still going back to Europe to, yeah. to collect their major paychecks and stuff. But obviously, others, perhaps I, I've heard it from many uh, past guests and stuff that that arguably. This either rejuvenated their career or became their career uh, with this sort of bright, sparkly new terrain to be, you know, tilled. Um, but it was clearly not what you were used to in the European circles, right? Because it was you're selling the game to a completely foreign, if you will, audience here. Yeah. And and, and I'm telling you, most of the top guys that I played with had a very keen understanding that they were here not just to play the game they love and make some money. 
But and Yohan in particular, for, for a year, he had a show once a week to explain, uh, the, you know, to explain the, the beautiful game of football. Uh, John Feinstein, who wrote incredible books afterwards, you know, one of the great authors, uh, they gave him the task to follow Yohan. So he, go, he went on every away trip and that, we're talking about the Washington Post, you know, said, hey, listen, we got something here. This is a, a new sport um, that's really trying to grow on the surface that brought in some of the best players in the world. We we have to follow this. The, the business structure wasn't great at the end, but there were really Gert went out of his way to do clinics and 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 expose. And then it could be as four World Cups as well. He he on road trips would spend time with South American younger coaches or players and things like that. There were some that that didn't care much about that, but the bigger boys uh, uh, certainly certainly did. And and Jan was distraught when it finally collapsed. He really did because the big big guys not only did they enjoy being part of this on the field, but it was so refreshing for them. Jan could finally, with his family, walk through Georgetown, and not too many people recognized him. He said Thomas in Barcelona, we couldn't get out of our house. So that was another reason. What you just stated. Uh, Tim, that these guys found almost a second, you know, second few years um, while they were, you know, somewhat not over the hill, but but a little bit older due to the fact that they really enjoyed the both on and off the field experience experience in this country. Johan made a point in every road trip that we had to do something cultural and because he just would explain to us, guys, <laughs> we're in Vancouver. You ever, have you ever been in Vancouver? I know. I just did some research. If you look if you look left, left you see the ocean. If you look right, you see actually the white mountains. We don't see that in the Netherlands or in Barcelona. Um, yeah, might as well so take advantage really, of it, right? Yeah, no, it was really cool. He was he was really really into it. Wim Janssen, uh, also seventy four World Cup. Feyenoord uh, was my teammate and my roommate. Um, and and the same thing. He he just. They they loved it and and they later became in their own rights very good coaches. So they were they were already teachers, leaders, great players to start with. But they also were were at that time for me in particular um, tremendous teachers uh, about their philosophy, which was based on technical attacking football, not cynical. Uh, teaching defending is easy, you know. Fuck that. Let's let's go immediately in the final third. Let's be creative. Change creation. Uh, there was no XGs and that kind of stuff. It was really, as Johan said, you know, the game is really simple, but we nobody plays the game simply, and we're we're, we're romantics. That's why we lost in three World Cup finals because we wanted <laughs> even in the final we wanted to win in 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 the beautiful style instead of just saying, you know what. After one nothing, fifth minute, Germany seventy four. Let's close up. No, we just had wave of attacks, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you know, Mueller scores two. Thanks for coming. Same in Argentina, although Argentina probably deserved that one. Um, and here I am watching seventy four, seventy eight, and some of these guys that are playing in World Cup finals, like Ricardo Villa, uh, Ozzy Alonso, become teammates for me later, including Cruyff, Wim Janssen. Uh, Ruth Kroll, obviously played here. Uh, Robbie Rensenbrink played in, in in Seattle or Portland. Uh, the list goes on. Win Suby was my my teammate, obviously. So it was just some big players that came here for an adventure, uh, but also to to help <laughs> to help. <laughs> I don't know how to how to phrase that. Uh, you know, to see if we we can instill some kind of passion, 
not only in in defense but more in in general terms um and i think we we failed to a certain extent i think it was it was sexy to go to uh, for a while it was a little bit of a fad i think uh i was caught up into it, it was a young crowd partying crowd most of the time where you, where you everywhere you went for three or four years most of these clubs outdrew uh the the the, the nets the jets the giants whatever the cosmos you know 50 60,000 people but somehow it just totally crumbled in a very short amount of time and obviously t- television had a lot to do with that well, it worked for me. So for you got one person at least. So, you know, yeah. what, <laughs> no, for, hey, listen, in, in, in 98, I was the assistant coach and I would talk to Marcelo Balboa, Eric Winalda, uh, Kobe Jones, uh, uh, John Harks and those guys. They all grew up between eight to 12 when their, when their dad would take them to soccer games. I mean, yeah. you know, the Cosmos was really important for that, for that 1994 group of most of the U.S. team that fell in love with the game because they watched the NESL. Now, it was a small group, but we, we you know, we touched something, nerves within those guys uh, that they became later guys that represented the U.S. because they fell in love with Beckenbauer, Croy, whoever it might be, Bestie. All right, what's this? Game time? Fantastic. Hey, buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can snag the tickets without the stress with the Game Time app. And I will tell you, the Game Time app has gotten me out of a couple of jams on more than a few occasions. I'll tell you, a couple of weeks back, I travel fairly often for work. I was stuck in New York. I had uh, dinner plans fall through uh, during a business trip. I was leaving the next morning, uh, but had some time on my hands. And what's a sports guy like me to do? Well, scouring around to see if there are any events going on. And sure enough, the Knicks were playing the Nets at home at the world's most famous arena. So about an hour before the game, I fired up the Game Time app and uh, found a decently priced ticket. I won't tell you what (laughs) the people around me paid for their ticket, but it certainly wasn't nearly as expensive as theirs. And I got to watch the Knicks uh, uh, in a rare uh, moment of uh, uh, amazingness, uh, kick the snot out of the nets. Uh, but that's uh, game time is uh, the place uh, to get your last-minute tickets. Uh, they've got a tremendous set of deals, flash deals they call them, uh, and last-minute tickets. Uh, they're easy to find and buy uh, for just about every kind of event you want, sports and entertainment and music, that kind of stuff. The images, the seat views are just perfect. They're great. That's that's always like the, the big uh, conundrum when you're looking at a, uh, a seating chart. You have no idea where you're going to be, uh, what your view is going to be like. And Game Time's got uh, probably the best imagery that I've seen of any of the uh, ticket sites out there. And, of course, they've got a lowest price guarantee, including event cancellation protection. So you know you're going to be covered in case. As a matter of fact, that the Game Time guarantee means that you'll always get the best price. And if you find tickets in the same section uh, and row for less, Game Time will credit you 110% of the difference. Uh, Don't believe me? Try it for yourself. Download the Game Time app now, create an account, and then on us, use the code GOODSEATS for $20 off of your first purchase. Again, that's the Game Time app. And uh, it's also, uh, you can check them also out at gametime.co. 
Uh, but get the app. Download the app now. Create an account and use the code GOODSEATS for 20 bucks off your first purchase. Terms apply for sure. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. It's game time. Thank you, Game Time, for your sponsorship of this week's episode. And now, back to our conversation. Tell me about uh, your, what are your recollections uh, and likes, dislikes of the various rule changes in the NASL. So 35-yard line, the uh, shootout, uh, the Newman scoring system, right? Six points for for a win, and, and you get a goal for every uh, – yeah. sorry, point for every goal you score. Even if you're losing, you get points. And, and sudden death overtime. Well, what of that stuff did you like or not like from, from the, those exploits? Any of those good uh, and maybe should be worthwhile keeping again or, or what? Well, I mean, we're, we're, listen, you're talking to, to an old-school guy. And I was in the locker rooms – eight to ten years younger than Jan Cruyff, Wim Janssen, George Best. You know, I mean, I, I came at a very young age, at 21. Uh, so these, these were all traditionalists. So the traditionalists, you, you don't screw with the game. In saying that, Jan would make once in a while and come and say, wow, we got a lot of space in midfield. Because, you know, if we play against the strikers, which is true, because <laughs> Gert Miller became a roommate, Gert is just going to hang out at the 35-yard line because he's too lazy or he's too old to go back to the midfield line. And when I later confronted uh, um, uh, Gert with that a year later when the dips actually folded in 1980 after we came back from a uh, Far Eastern tour, I asked him that. He said, Thomas, it, it, added, two, it added a year to my career because I didn't have to run back to the midfield line. So I, I could save 60-yard doggies throughout the game base by hanging out. But, you know, in the end, it forced defenders then to stay back with them. There was so much space in midfield. It didn't look like the real game. The only thing that I think we could institute in MLS and even in the World Cup or anywhere else is, is the shootout. The shootout to me is, is the fans loved it, obviously. Um, closer to, you know, that the goalkeeper has more of a fair chance. You get five seconds. Uh, you see a lot of different ways in which guys can beat the goalkeeper. Beckenbauer used to, on the turf, flip his first ball up in the air with his toes. I was at that goalkeeper. game where he did that, and Carl Alberto followed it, and Minnesota kicks that 78 series. Correct. There never, you go. Never there you forget go. it. Never forget and it. And the goalkeeper would come and go, oh, he could just now, you know, he could lop it over me. So now, now he's frozen a little bit. And if he came, Beckenbauer would go, whoop. If he didn't game, the second touch was with the chest, and then the third one was on the ground. But it froze the goalkeeper. Some guys went in an angle, you know. Some guys tried to get around the goalkeeper in five seconds, which wasn't wasn't easy. Were you I, any, I, were you were you were you particularly good at it? I actually was, and I, I'm I'm a was more a hard nosed Johan Neeskens type, you know. And every team at that time needed two or three of those guys. If Cruyff could kick, you know, like in in in, in hockey. I watch the NHL right now. If you're a star guy, I'll put you in the boards. And and besides the fact that I, you know, I had a pretty good technical understanding, but I knew my role real well. And Migos always said, Thomas, if you're the fittest guy in the team and you have the right mentality and you get it and you play simple, you don't turn the ball over, find Johan as often as you can, job done. Number nine, if he doesn't score, job done. Yeah, it was a little bit old school, but uh, I was very good at that. Um, so I took one in the first game. And what I did was I, I would play it fairly f- 
far in front of me. So it would end up 22, 24-yard touts. And while the goalkeeper was still moving, my second touch was inside of the foot, boop, near post with a little bit of a bend. And the goalkeeper, since he was still in his stride going forward, was caught most of the time. He was never able to set himself. And I didn't really think about that. It was more out of fear. I was like, oh, my God, what do I do with my second touch? Well, let me just play it hard on the ground, a little bit of bend. And I scored probably 90% of my uh, my shootout goals. Um, you know, so, yeah, I, that to me is still something that people need to consider. Um, although, yeah, should a World Cup final end in penalties, should a whatever. Yeah, I agree. I, especially on the international level, I, I just, I didn't, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm a big, I, it's interesting. We talked to Paul Gardner a long time ago when we first got this show going, and he kind of said, he thought that the shootout and the 35 yard line were, were interesting, but, but definitely bent the rules of the game per se. The one thing that he actually thought was the best was the point system, because all you're doing is incentivizing scoring goals, even if you're losing to at least get some points out of the deal. And, and you yeah. wouldn't fuss with the game per se, right? Correct. No. Yeah. I mean, there, there's something to be, to be set for that, you know, uh, no doubt about it. Um, and I mean, that, that was also done a little bit to make the score lines bigger because a lot of people looked at score lines of zero zero or nil nil, as people would say sarcastically. The socialist sport from you know from Europe, what is it doing here? Nobody scores, and uh, that's why people thought indoor was was going to be the game going forward. That didn't happen either, and then people got a better understanding of of, of the game it, itself. But I thought initially that was done. Uh, like most other rules to engage with the crowd and maybe, you know, you look at the newspaper, oh, wait a minute, 8-6, uh, 9-5, uh, 7-4, they got six points. You know, I mean, yeah, that would have made sense from that standpoint to sell it a little bit more and it would also so make sense. You're right. Listen, we're down 3 uh, nothing. We've defended our whole the whole game. It hasn't worked. Our game plan to sneak out of here with keeping, you know, keeping the zero, low block, park the bus and get one in the counter. Might as well go for broke and see if we can score one so we get some points out of this game. I, I agree with, with Paul and, and, and you. That would make sense. But if you even look after the NESL, a lot of, you know, a lot of leagues, you know, came up. And I coached in some of those leagues. Won uh, a championship in, what was it, 99 or whatever with the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. Well, no lemon owned it. And they had like... Uh, Crazy stuff, you know. They did like with hockey. You had two minutes where somebody had to come off. Uh, only one defender in the eighteen-yard box on uh, corners. Um, if there was a sixth or fifth or sixth foul, an attacker could run from the midfield line, and after three seconds, a whistle would go, and the rest of the team, the opposing team, could try to chase him and, and see if they could tackle him before he could score. I mean, shit like that, you know, it's great. Yeah, uh, and, and we've actually talked to Pablo Maurer, who's a, a writer for The Athletic, and he's actually been on this uh, sort of personal uh, quest because I think Tony Miola, the, this is the USISL, I think it was. I think Tony Miola he was with the Long Island Rough Riders uh, at, a to- at the time was remembered this as well. It's sort of like a, a thunder herd, so to speak, right? Where it's like yeah. the ball goes and then everybody else. But uh, I think Pablo is on this quest to find some video of that. And nobody's been able to sort of surface that yet because it does sound pretty crazy uh, by comparison, right? But um, I don't know. These rules, by the way, I, they think they've mellowed over time. I do think 
I do think some of them are worth experimentation, maybe at the USL level or whatever MLS next is and that kind of stuff. But I, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, let me ask. I, mean, I, I, I agree with you, but I was part of that. Tony actually played for me one year, uh, just before the Rough Riders or after the Rough Riders. I can't remember. And he was part. So Tony was very much part of the two years where it was a little, little crazy in terms of these these owners trying to. And these owners were 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 no lemon. Uh, Chuck Blazer. Chuck owned uh, the Miami uh, Sharks. I think it was called Tab Plate. Tab Ramos played for him. Uh, you had Peter Bridgewater out in uh, in in the West Coast with San Jose, where he had uh, uh, before MLS Eric Winalda and those guys playing for him. You know, I mean. Uh, because there's nothing else for these guys uh, uh, to do. Well, and these I, I guys had some. They, these these owners were thinking really outside of the box. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I, w- I want to get to that in one second. But you did mention indoor, and I can't let you. Uh, and I, I do want to segue to the the managerial stuff. Um, indoor. So you were you had various tastes of the indoor game when you were here. You played the NASL version with the Aztecs that first, I guess, winter season. I guess it was in the no. Forum? Yeah, no, no. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We played in the forum. Yeah, right. And then, and then and I got then... my second. I got my second taste in 1980, the winter where I was in Fort Lauderdale, where we played out in the Sunrise Auditorium, where normally only rock bands would play in the middle of the Everglades. There's nothing built there. Yeah, you're right. So I played two years of the NESL, and then that crumbled, and then it became a mixture. And then I played for the Chicago Sting for Willie Roy. In the new league, basically, so against the blast. Uh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, what was what was your memories of the indoor game? Number one, did you like it or not? Number two, do you remember any differences between the NASL version, which seemed to be like trying to catch up for the irony is that at the NASL before you even came over here, right, had these little tournaments in the early seventies, and then this MISL thing came and made a real league out of the indoor game, and then the NASL kind of caught up and stuff, but. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember sort of there was a year or two where they were both like directly competing with each other. Um, yep. what, what was your remembrance of it? Did you like the game? Was the NASL version better or worse than the I, MSL version? Any of that stuff? Or was it all a blur? I, I, I most, most players uh, hated it. So I would say the MISL version was much better, but they, they really scouted players that were apt. I mean, they just turned outdoor teams into indoor teams and you know, let's let's face it. Uh, I, I wasn't a highly technical player, uh, and and the concept of hitting balls against boards and stuff like that. Now the crowds were into it. You would go to you would go to certain places in Middle America, you know, and they would fireworks and smoke bombs and things like that. So that made it somewhat attractive. But the game itself, even the Carl Heinz Granitas of the world that played it for a few years, the Padomaretics of the world, who were very good at it. Um, didn't particularly like it, you know, the turf. And in those days, we would play in the hockey arenas most of the time. And we would just put the turf on the on the ice. In Chicago, all three teams, the basketball team, the hockey team, and the soccer team, and we would outdraw both for a yeah, year or two. Yeah, the stadium. Till, yeah, the Chicago till, stadium. Till, yeah, till Michael Jordan came. But it was a stadium in the old neighborhood, and the stands were woof, straight up. It was like the Bombonero almost. So in terms of atmosphere, it was great. Outside of that, I, 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 you know, the MISL, obviously, starting with the Arrows and then San Diego. And the NASL owners, this was their last grab. You know, the, the outdoor game was dying. So they felt, okay, we got to all jump into this thing here with the Minnesota Strikers. We went to the finals one year against San Diego, lost in seven. And they had Zungle and 
and and uh, Julie V and oh man, they, they had a good team by the way. Um, so some of them made a trade out of it, and some were very good at it. Most didn't particularly care for it. the NASL guys. I know that I played against in outdoor games. It was another paycheck, but there wasn't a lot about let me teach the indoor game to some inner city kids. You know that that that, that was done and dusted. Yeah, so I, this is a good segue because look, the, 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 as the '80s sort of rolled on and stuff, right? Not only was the the indoor game, which was supposedly going to be the future of the sport in this country, and the NSL dying, there was this sort of very dark period of time. As a fan, I can I can attest, but I got to imagine as a player, um, you know, you you kind of had to reinvent. Yes, you're playing for you know the APSL version of the Fort Lauderdale Strikers that name at least carrying on the. Uh, yeah. But you're also looking at, you know, your beginnings of your managerial career as well, almost as a I don't want to call it a side job. But I mean, you're doing all that you you're reinventing yourself with all due respect. Right. And that, that to me was the, the the most important. My high school college where I had balls in the back of my truck. You know, I, I had to set out the cones. There was no assistant coaches, even the 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 the, the, the uh, league you just referenced. Although I had a great team, I had the three amigos: Ricardo Alonso, Marcelo Carrera, uh, another Argentinian in there, um, Victor Morland, Barry Wallace, uh, Artie Mauser, Tony Miola, and Gold. Well, these are all great when, names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we when we wanted that 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 year, but for me, and it was not a lot of money. Obviously, you know that those two or three years in these lower leagues, understanding what it takes to you know. <laughs> to put your squares out and how to build a practice from simple to complex and steep with my, my philosophy. And then later running into MLS where all of a sudden you get assistant coaches and early on with a little data analysis, uh, which obviously helped in certain ways. Yeah. Those were, those were great learning, learning years for me um, to put it all together. And one of the reasons I think Farouk Qureshi looked at my resume and said, wow, this guy's done it all from grassroots to high school to college uh, to some professional or semi-pro, if you want to call it. And he had a lot of bigger names for the mutiny, but he chose me because of the fact that I did my my, my homework and my yeah, background as a teacher helped in that endeavor as well. Uh, and I speak my languages too, which is good, you know, and that, that's as a, somebody from the Netherlands, small country, we're, we're great traders, you know, over the many centuries. So we got to speak our languages in order to survive in, in the Netherlands. Um, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, those were important years for me. No did, doubt. You, did you ever think that in the late eighties, you know, you're, you're really keeping it alive, both, you know, you're beginning your managerial career. Hell, you were double dipping with the strikers at that time, whatever league they were in those years, uh, yep. which I'm sure was always a challenge as well. I mean, you're, you're playing, but you're also coaching and, and, I, I I gotta think that when you heard that the United States was getting the World Cup and then the subsequent information that FIFA was only giving the US the cup if they were to start their own professional mm -hmm. league again, that had to be a wonderful I mean, that must have been the, the light at the end of the tunnel for you, especially. Yeah, it, it was. And 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 then you realize that you've done some really important things that in Nine late 94, early 95, so Neil Galati calls me and says, Thomas, you've been entrenched as one of the few people. And Dave Durr uh, uh, was with the Colorado Foxes at that time. 
Um, you guys know a lot of players in this country. So why don't you help us setting up all these clinics in all these different cities, uh, most of them that will have MLS teams and go with uh, uh, Ivan Gazidas uh, to South America and Europe and try to sign some players for this league. You know, if, if I'm not being part of the semi-pro leagues, um, finally somebody recognized all the hard work I've done. So that, that also laid the groundwork, I'm sure, uh, with the Tampa Bay Mutiny being uh, a league-owned team that Sunil might have. I'm, I'm not so sure, actually, I think about it, that Sunil might have nudged Farouk and say, hey, Thomas has been in the fold already. Would only make sense. He's spoken to LPB Valderrama already a few times when he went to, with Ivan down to South America. Um, that's the first time I'm actually putting two and two together here with Sunil and Farouk and MLS and, and the work that Dave Durr and, and I particularly did leading up to the launch of, of 96. And and what was your what did, what was your feeling about the league before, during, and then at the end of 1996? I mean, you were the coach of the year. I mean, the mutiny were, you know, they were on fire except for, for the in the playoffs, obviously. But you were you were probably the best team in the regular season. Uh, yep. There had to be some kind of validation on some level. Uh, did you think the league was gonna like was here to stay? And I mean, or were you worried that the NASL experience might happen again? Uh, yes, I know. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, there was obviously a lot of the, you know, the single entity and all those things, and I stayed away from from all of that. I lived a little bit in the moment, to be real honest with you. I was looking ahead till I went to New England, and in just before I went to DC. So in '99, I won a championship with DC United, and I think I called Sunil at one time to make a trade, and he said, "Thomas, I'm not so sure if this league is going to make it. In particular, your owners haven't emptied up." Because these guys had to spend a lot of money in the first few years to keep this thing going, hoping that at the back end they would make some money, which I'm sure they're, they're doing right now. Looking just at the franchise fees, you know, the way they, they've gone up. But there were some tricky times. If it wasn't for the end shoots, uh, the hunts, uh, that thing could have crumbled. Now they hung on to it and smartly so learned from some of the poor decisions that the NESL made. Didn't want to, yeah, that was the only thing that, that, pissed me off a little bit is they, they they didn't want to talk about the NESL. I'm so glad that fans in you know a lot of cities when they got teams that they wanted to be the Timbers, the Sounders, the uh, Whitecaps, and the list goes on and on as well. So um, showing that the NESL obviously had a had still a, a tremendous impact um, off the field. I, I knew this thing was really serious when I got to DC United and, and the way Kevin Payne and Bruce Arena put that franchise together and talked to Kevin, uh, rest in peace, uh, KP, um, about the longevity of this league because he was pretty much one of the founders, you know, with him and Sunil were very tight and 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 Kevin had a great mind for the game, cared about the game, was was a brilliant salesman and 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 put probably a a role model franchise together that a lot of other clubs that came into the league thereafter looked at their own facilities, keeping uh, the administration and the technical part, keep them together. Uh, a, a sound philosophy, fighting for the fear that he wanted to be DC United, you know, uh, a particular logo. Don't give me the bullshit Nike, uh, uh, you know, like we had with the mutiny, for instance, mutant bet. Um, so he he was very influential on that, and, and not not, a, made, not a fan of the original. Uh, although you're wearing the jersey as we record this, though, yeah, I, yeah, because it's, a, it's nostalgic a, about it. 
It's nostalgia, exactly. It's signed by the whole team, and I, I guess hey, it, it wasn't year. as bad as the clashes, San Jose clashes. Metro, <laughs> I know, I know. The Metro I know. stars, oh even worse. When Nike rolled it out, we all the, the traditionalists. We had a meeting. I remember vividly uh, with all the coaches. All there was ten of them: Lothar Osiander, Bruce, uh, myself, Eddie, Eddie Fermani, Ziggy, Eddie was falling asleep, um, and we had the guys from the from the uh, uh, Metro Stars. And these guys were talking about, seriously, these guys were talking about, well, you, you remember baseball, they put a midget to the play. How about um, the goalkeeper can't be bigger than 5'5"? Five, five? Um, I'm telling you, if it wasn't for Kevin and Sunil, there were, and the Hunts, quite frankly, uh, who know the game, that categorically said no. But some of those rules that, that we've seen throughout um uh, that we just talked about. Some of these guys seriously wanted to implement that starting in 1996. It didn't happen, but some of those early meetings were unbelievable. Was and, do you, like, and do you do you think that's because of the of the somewhat still raw taste in people's mouths of the old NASL? And they didn't want to repeat that. Or they want oh, to completely distance themselves from it. No doubt about it. That was the underlying tone. It wasn't said in that many words. But nobody wanted to go come close to what the NSL had tried to do in terms of rule changes and mimic that, uh, because they, I mean, Sunil said that's a that's a death wish, guys. We 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 we, we there's no way we can do that. Uh, you know, whatever. Okay, uh, we'll quickly sort of get to the last things here. So I'm, I'm, uh, go you got you got right only on. ten minutes. Then I'm gonna then this thing is gonna die. Got it. Okay. So, uh, thank you. We, um, all right. So tell me then when the, when the leagues contract, when the league contracted, which is in the early aughts, right? The 2002 ish or so. Yep. Uh, and Tampa Bay was one of those teams to go. Um, what did you think then? Did you think that it was a goner for sure? Or this was just a step in the ultimate right direction? Were you worried? Yeah, I was worried because I saw a little bit of deja vu signs, um, uh, you know, from from the from the the NESL. And I, I I remember spending time with Joe Robbie, who loved to be on the road, and I had a keener sense then of, you know, off the field stuff and how to build franchise, how to keep it alive, and things. And I, you know, in Minneapolis, he moved the franchise to Minneapolis because you play indoors and outdoors. Um, who else in the the uh, down here or DC was was basically um, uh, Werblin, and I got very close to Tom Werblin. So we spent time with Sonny Werblin uh, talking about the league, quite frankly, and, and he pulled the plug in 1980 um, and saw certain signs. That's whatever. I mean, yeah, I saw the same signs. The worry of the owners were, were, were the ones that I, I I can't speak on single entity versus non-single entity. I can't speak about all that kind of stuff. The lawsuits, obviously, uh, that they've continued to win against the old NESL, particularly the Cosmos and and the guy that runs FC Miami, you know, the, the field exclusion and, and stuff like that. So I, I think that the crafts, the hunts, the end shoots is – felt very, very good about the direction of this league based on um, the blueprint that they put out from a business standpoint. And and they slowly build on that. And I must say, they, they've even surprised me uh, how far we've come. And and <laughs> that's, we're, we're scratching maybe only the surface, you know, in terms of more teams and even in 
very poor times, there's still a lot of people out there with deep pockets that are willing to uh, invest, uh, be it San Diego, Las Vegas, but there's there's other cities too that, that can't wait to jump on the bandwagon if they can. All right, well, let, let's wrap. Uh, but yeah, we went we went through a, a, a tough a, a tough stretch there, and if it wasn't for let's face it, for for end shoots, that thing would have in two hundred two would have gone down the tubes. You're right. And I, and I think that's that's for the documentary that ultimately has to be done. All right, so let me ask you this then, <laughs> with a mind toward the future, and I must confess, when I watch the MLS games that feature the fusion, uh, fusion, there I go, I can't believe that, Inter-Miami, oh, but, but there's a Freudian slip. Uh, it um, certainly is. We're, we're talking about retraction, yeah. Fusion no, I'm sorry is, about yeah. that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I, I must admit, though, what I do watch on uh, on, on Apple TV+, Plus, uh, I do go to the alternate um, uh, audio so that I can hear you because you're a lot more. Oh, angry, cool. Frankly, cool. Uh, and I wish more people would do that, by the way. And they, they should do more of those. And Phil, Phil Shane is now on board as well. So oh, fantastic. Well, Phil Shane, yeah, one of the original voices of the, uh, the old ESPN. There you go, Tim. Right? There you go. Um, so I, let, let me ask you this. I want I'm going to I'm gonna end with the Chivas USA question in a second. But given the what you just laid out, what what is your sense of the pro game in the United States, given all that you've been through here? And now the precipice that MLS is upon now, I mean, perhaps 32 teams before, you know, uh, all is said and done. I, I worry that there may be, well, is it the best of times? I mean, great stadiums for sure. I think the play is certainly getting better. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's but, you know, I mean, there's a lot of sports, no, right now, a lot of private equity and stuff. And, you know, I, is it too much maybe? Or or do you worry in the back of your mind? Given only, been through? only time will tell. We got the Gold Cup obviously coming up. We got Copa America in 24. We got the World Cup. I, I'll be, be surprised if the Women's World Cup is not here because FIFA is not stupid. This is the best country where they can make the most money. Uh, we got the Olympics here where soccer, each and every Olympics becomes more important. The biggest players want to take part in the Olympics. I, I Yeah, I'm scared too. That might be too much. We get more international teams again due to COVID now coming back and, and being here in the summer, including Wrexham. That's a great story. You see uh, Watts in, in investing in, in Burnley. Uh, Burnley. Uh, you see in the top 10 in England, uh, Six are American ownership. You look at John Texter investing in uh, Crystal Palace, Belgian team, Lyon, uh, Brazilian team. And I spoke to John. He's a good friend of mine. And John said, Thomas, if it's up to all these uh, equity guys that I've convinced that soccer is the way to go, I, I can buy 10 more clubs with, with the money they, they're willing to invest. So, yeah, yeah I, don't know, I don't know how good bit. that is, though, right? I mean, like, say, no, NYC, no, it scares you know, me a like, little bit. Yeah, yeah, like the man you the excuse me, the Man City model, right? I I get it, right? But it's like I don't know if I want one corporation, if you will, owning a team in Australia, a team in MLS, a team in the I mean, I, I, I get it, but I also worry about sort of the soul, perhaps, of the sport oh, in the without, in with, with, without a doubt. I mean, look at my own my own club right now. My own club was was initially owned by by two guys that sold it for uh whatever, $10, because they love the game to somebody else that lived in Amsterdam as well. And now you get all these conglomerates coming in. The soul, yes, the soul is slowly dying, and it's more about business, equity firms. Countries are are not as much oligarchs right now due to the, the, the crisis in, in Russia and, and Ukraine. But, but yes, it, it, it is scary. The bubble sooner or later is going to, burst uh, although sky continues to raise the money in terms of tv rights so the owners are going okay this is pretty good look at the glazers they 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 invested 
with borrowed money, basically paper money, and they're going to walk away with six, seven billion after what fifteen years? It's insane. The, the Qatari—that's the Qatari royal family. It's a country owning PSG. You look at City. Uh, you look at you know potentially Saudi Arabia coming in more and more to play as well. Looking at twenty thirty, Messi, Ronaldo, and the money that splurts around. Yeah, it, it, the soul is slowly taken away from that. And then you go back into the pro and rel discussion as well. But uh, well, yeah, let's yeah. end, let's end on that one. I know your battery is going to run out in a second, but, but uh, in terms of the future, I mean, I know you're obviously, you're still very, uh, very much part of the American soccer mix. We only scratch the surface of other conversations we could have maybe some other time, I hope. Uh, but uh, what do you think of pro rel? Do you think indeed that that would, uh, Come in his, the regular season more, you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff, or or is Come it kind of just... historical soul like thing? I, I I'm I'm pro pro rel. On the other hand, uh, for a city, for a a a a a providence, for all the fans that are mostly for a hundred years, you know, from family to family to family, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation. That's my only club when I. Grew up, uh, it was Ajax. I was born and raised in Amsterdam. In saying that, I look at some of these, you know, I, I played in relegation games um, because in, in the Netherlands, also at the youth level, uh, you, you, you go to an ERDVC or you drop down as well. It doesn't make the game better. I, I look right now at all these young Americans and Aronson is not playing anymore because he's a technical player. So Garcia went for a stronger guy that, that's faster, better on set pieces. Uh, McKinney gets taken off most games. Musa starts, uh, fights relegation, but is taken off also in around the 60th minute. And and I know that from my own past experiences, uh, case in point, uh, and I don't know if it's a done deal, but if you at Leeds right now, Leeds has gone from Bielsa to a guy that only is there <laughs> to keep the zero and win one nothing. So in terms of development for players, I don't think that pro and relegation is, is good because when things get tight, most coaches go to veteran players. Most coaches go to being sarcastic. Most coaches will drop a forward and go to a full 4-2. The first and foremost, keep the zero and hope they can win one or tie one on the road. Uh, so it has, it's a double-edged sword, to be real honest with you. And, and I'm not so sure if, if people say, well, I mean, we don't have any meaningful games. It's very interesting to see that a guy that scores a hat trick against Real Madrid that played in the ML- MLS just try to try to figure it out, and he scored six in the last four. Uh, uh, I think has said one of the great things of he said a single entity in his interview after the game is that I I had to prep for the the, the playoffs. Now I know eight teams or ten teams or sixteen teams make it, and you can say well the remainder. You know, of those teams that, that are not in it with five, six, seven, eight games to go, but they can still play attacking football. A lot of times the coaches say, you know what, I'm going to play young players. I got nothing else to lose. These three older guys won't be here next year anyway. I'm not so sure if it's from a player development standpoint, if it's good for players in terms of excitement and, and, and getting a city to buy into it. I'm not so sure in, in the minds of more sports fans here that aren't true soccer fans that you and I know uh, in, in other countries, if it really matters. And and let's be real honest, playoffs is part of the American sports culture. These billionaires are not going to say, I'm going to invest this kind of money and then 
drop to the USL, uh, no chance. Yeah, I, I look at the end of the day, the end, the, the answer is sadly money and wherever the money wants to go is probably where yep. it goes. I just worry that it's too there's too much money. It's very it's it's I don't know, private equity and all that kind of stuff. I I I I guess I worry, and it's probably born from what we talked about before, right? And you and I have both experienced this in, in vastly different ways. We've seen the heady times, we've seen it all go away, and then we've seen it being rebuilt and even stumble along the way to where it is now. And arguably, I don't think we, if we had this conversation 30 years ago, none of us would have agreed, uh, would have believed soccer specific stadiums that, you know, ESPN would be carrying soccer games as well as covering you know, sports and, and the scores and people actually talking and the crowds and, and all that kind of the culture. Right. I, I don't think you would have even imagined that 30 years ago. So there has to be absolutely something said for all of that. And you're a pioneer. So I, we you know, I appreciate you taking just at least a few minutes for 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 this, because, you know, you, you've gone through the crucible, if you will. And um, you should be rewarded with some of those fruits for sure. And I, I hope it keeps going. But, uh, you know, but not too crazily, you know, <laughs> I I I, I echo all of those sentiments, Tim, and, and and thanks for having me on. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure, and 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 talking to somebody that goes all the way back and 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 puts some thought into what's right and wrong. Uh, we need more people like you, and you, you're like a historian. So that's that's you're pretty brilliant the way it is. You know, segue from the fusion to the earthquakes, from Bestie to Trevor Francis. Thank you. Uh, it was a fun ride for me here. Well, I appreciate it. Maybe some other time we'll have another chance to do it, maybe in person. And and, and then at that point, I'll ask you about Chiefs USA. But until then, we'll leave it to that. <laughs> All right. Many, many thanks to the one, the only Thomas Rungan. Um, I hope this is just the first of hopefully a, a bunch of other conversations uh, we can have. Uh, he's clearly got many, many, many more stories uh, to tell and hopefully there's some opportunities down the road maybe as the um the lead up uh and the actual formal promotion for the feature film comes up comes about uh and uh, perhaps other things that we we certainly have been thinking about doing some live events and some live interviews and that kind of stuff with the studio not a studio audience but not an audience actual audience uh but uh we'll see uh and uh we'll keep our fingers crossed that uh he enjoyed the experience enough this time. Uh, let's see. The movies, plural, that you should seek out. Uh, one is uh, effectively out there, kind of hard to find, I think, uh, on purpose, uh, but was the original, the 2014 Next Goal Wins documentary. Uh, you heard the promo. You can see uh, some clips on YouTube as well as the official trailer uh, in its visual form. Uh, and I think, again, you want to look for the DVDs, go to your local library, but keep an eye out. I cannot imagine that uh, that documentary will not officially again, once again, I believe, uh, find a home on a streaming service as the new movie, the actual dramatic slash comic feature uh, comes out later this year, sometime in, in later 2023. Uh, not quite sure. We'll try to let you know if we find out sooner than the uh the average bear out there, but uh, it is also called Next Goal Wins. That trailer, of course, is also available uh, out there wherever you find trailers. Perhaps the preview channel on uh, on your streaming fast channel uh, lineup uh, on your, say, your Samsung TV Plus or your Vizio platform or on YouTube. You can find it there, too. 
And again, that's uh, store, uh, storing, starring <laughs> Michael Fassbender, uh, Elizabeth Moss. I think Will Arnett's in this movie. Uh, a whole bunch of other great folks. And uh, again, directed by the Academy Award winning uh, Taika Waititi. And uh, it's, I think, based on what I've seen thus far, is going to be quite something. And hopefully uh, Thomas gets uh, a whole sort of another round of um, uh, attention. And it's interesting, too, because uh, in in my thanks to him, again, this is a couple of weeks back when we recorded this show, I, I suggested that he think about doing a, a, a an autobiography because he's just so full of stories. And um, not only did he say thank you for that idea, but he also sent me... <laughs> A pitch deck for apparently another documentary that's in the in the uh, in the works that is basically a, a devoted to his story, his life story, uh, and uh, it's called I think right now the tentative title is called the Curious Tale of Thomas Rongan. So, uh, if you're interested in helping finance that movie, boy, we would love to for sure. Uh, just uh, send us some email and uh, we'll get you connected for sure. Uh, our email address, not only for that but for all things, is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. By all means, please. Uh, we're happy to hear your comments, both specifically and generally, uh, about uh, our various topics and stuff. Uh, while you're online, why don't you bookmark and uh, visit regularly our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. All of our episodes are posted there for your streaming pleasure. Of course, the best way is to make sure that you subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts, literally wherever you get podcasts. If you have a player or a service that you use and you somehow cannot find Good seats still available in your feeds to uh, to record and or download or stream. Please let us know because we're we we aim to be just about everywhere you can find them. Uh, and so far, so good. Knock on wood. Let's see what else. Uh, our social media feeds. You can follow us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You can follow us on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, what else? Our pal Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Thank you, sir. As always, a uh, a tip of the uh, I guess the Atlanta Braves cap because I know he's a big Atlanta Braves fan. So let's just uh, keep him uh, hoping, I guess, for <laughs> for uh, post uh, postseason excitement this year. And uh, we thank you, great listeners, for uh, supporting the show. As always, please tell your friends. Please rate and review us where you can. And um, help the algorithm, why don't you? And we'll get more people to, uh, to to saddle up and listen for whatever we've got in the weeks ahead or even the weeks past, for God's sakes. Thanks for uh, supporting us, and we appreciate it to no end. We'll see you next week, God willing. Until then, please take care and thank you.